Martin, it's time for tech. It is. But could you, I mean, I know the answer, but could you give a uh, definition of the word tech? No, I think uh, I have no idea. I mean, it, it's the miracle in my pocket that allows me to talk to the other end of the world and find things in a second. But if you ask me I, what it means, I have no clue. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a change of the world. I mean, it feels like that to me, but that's all because I'm a layman too. Like, I wouldn't really know where to start either. Um, but yeah, tech is taking over. There's an app for everything. It's taking yeah. over our lives in the most mundane tasks, but it's also taking over our work. And the greatest projects are now done through AI. Algorithms are figuring things out that we can't even understand anymore. So to get a good definition of what tech really means, I'm off to Enschede to speak to Peter Palverbeek. He's professor in the philosophy of technology at the university there. And yes, it's up to him to take a stab at what is tech. I don't think that there is a textbook definition of, of, of tech. But I think uh, what people intuitively mean when they use the word is that it's about technology from the fourth industrial revolution, the current digital revolution that we see, where really technologies are merging with every aspect of our daily lives, with our material environment. So I think that's one element. It's pervasive, it's everywhere. And the other thing is that uh, I think we've come to expect instant solutions. And so tech means it's fast. You just have an issue and we have an app for that, right? So I think these two elements, the fourth revolution, the digital becomes physical, as it were, and the other thing is fast solutions. With tech, uh, there seems this sort of promise of almost, like it's almost magic, that I want something and then tech will sort of sort of conjure it up out of nothing like there's like there's some a sense of passivity in tech yeah, yeah there's, it's, it's interesting so in that sense you could see tech as maybe the the, the, the most supreme form of what we used to call technology uh, there's this interesting theory by albert borkman an american philosopher of technology who speaks about the device paradigm and for him that means that uh, technologies increasingly ask uh, well ever less attention less concentration less focus from us they, they do things for us while moving to the background and of course on a small scale you can see that if you use a hammer i mean you don't focus on the hammer but you focus on the nail you want to get into the wall but if you use an app i mean you don't even have the faintest idea who made it how it worked, whatever and so i think in that sense Tech means the total, well, move towards pervasive technology, uh, ubiquitous technology, and also technology that's always at our service, at the background, without us even, well, noticing it. Now, if you wanted to see that pervasiveness, you could do worse than head east, over to Varseveld. Step through the inauspicious workshop doors and enter a spacious wide cutting floor of 24-7 Taylor Steel, a company that is able to cut nearly any kind of metal at any kind of scale. All thanks to Sophia, their very own artificial intelligence. Chief Operating Officer Frank Gehle is happy to show me around, provided I don't trip up the fully automated forklifts butting about. So. So nobody else can see what we're seeing here right now, but could you describe what we're looking at? Can you describe what we're seeing here? So we're here in a hall where we have two processes. On the right, you see the uh, robotic loaded laser machines where we do laser cutting. 
and on the left you see about 14 bench presses where we do the, uh, the bending of the materials. Um, we separate between aluminium and stainless steel and the normal black steel to, get, to keep all the stainless steel and aluminium very clean. So both the laser cutting is done separately for the materials but also the bending is done separately for the materials. Um, if I had to say what it looks like to somebody, it looks like it, it looks very futuristic in a way. It's very, very spacious. It's very, very light here. All, everything here is white. There are trees placed here. Why does it look the way it looks? Like, is there a reason for the way this here looks like it does? Um, we think uh, that this environment of industry can be as clean and as normal as your living quarters, as, as your house. And we also want to have it um, uh, feeling comfortable. So there is a lot of light coming from the, from the roof lights. Uh, you can look outside and outside can look inside because there are uh, uh, windows everywhere and it should be a pleasant environment to work. Yeah. From the clanging busyness in Varseveld to a quiet balcony in Amsterdam, where Hester van Dijk of Design Studio Overtreders Way just poured me a coffee. Overtreders Way has a knack for creating temporary structures based on maximum recyclability. The results look decidedly futuristic, but to Hester, tech doesn't really come into it. If you'd ask me, I would say I'm more uh, a low-tech kind of person. But I'm also living in the 21st century and I make use of the, the, the tech that's surrounding everybody, I think. So... Um, but but I like to if I, if looking at my work, I think it's important that I I understand what I'm making, and that other people understand it too. And, and when you see it, that you kind of uh, feel how it's being made. Was this a starting position for you when you started doing this kind of work? When you apply yourself in your studies, or is this something you've sort of grown into? No, it's definitely something I've grown into. Yeah, when I started studying, I didn't really have a, uh, an idea of the kind of designer that I wanted to be. It was more that I thought, if I study this, I can be anything because it's always about starting from scratch and reinventing the world actually so that was appealing to me maybe there was also already this low-tech uh, kind of motivation because uh, one of the things that inspired me to study design was the book from Droog Design what was it called I don't remember but it's if you want to buy it now on Marktplatz it's very expensive it's 200 euros or so because it's really a collector's item but I still have this book <laughs> because I bought it when it was new. Um, and it was, I think, the first publication of Droog Design. And it was all about this kind of ready-made uh, doorbell that was made of old wine glasses and a chair that was made of rags. And I thought, if, if you can look at the world in this way and make a chair out of a heap of rags, then you can, you can make anything. And you can also invent anything. So that was the, yeah, that I think was a huge inspiration for me to start studying design. The sort of idea that other people understand it too. Like how would tech stand in the way of that for you? Um, I think tech makes the world incomprehensible. I mean, we surround ourselves with 
shiny little boxes that are super important and we can do anything with these boxes order food or talk to our friends or uh, whatever it's beyond our imagination even what we can do with it but if the thing breaks down we haven't got a clue we don't know how to fix it <laughs> if uh, for some reason uh, uh, apple doesn't want to sell it to us anymore we are lost we're totally lost a few kilometers over in Zandam, I'm at the workshop of designer Dirk van der Kooi. It's noisy, it's dusty, and it's very, very busy. Pip Atkinson, van der Kooi's partner in crime, has brought me in front of what looks like a prop in a Sesame Street laboratory. So this is actually Dirk's first robot. This is the one that he uh, developed as a student. And we see that still. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely got... It's very steampunk. It's very steampunk. It's really got some charm about the way that it's all been hacked together. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's a trooper. It, it, it just, it, it goes and goes. So this one is, um, yeah, it's now extruding lights. And just like with the chairs, you know, we also have lights that are not successful. Something like this is quite dramatic. You know, where if, for example, the robot misses just, just one line of code, then the rest of the light is out of sync and we wind up with something that, you know, is sort of covered in these, these droplets of plastic. I think also an interesting object, but it's unfortunately not what we, are, what we are selling. How often does the machine surprise you in a pleasant way? Um, well, that is, yeah, that is a good question. I would say, yeah, once every few months... We, <laughs> yeah, this is what we're working for. We're working for one moment every few months where, you know, we might take uh, a bit of a risk in the code where we ask, for example, that the robot works at an angle that we think we know that it can't work at. And then you sort of pull back the curtain and indeed it has worked. So I would say that most of what we're doing is the, is the result of happy accidents, in fact. And I suppose when you, when you sort of accumulate those over the course of a decade, then it's enough happy accidents to, to run a studio. Uh, how often, like, is there any signs to that, to the accidents? Like, could you, is there something you can, like, can you steer those or are they genuinely unknowable? Um, no, there's definitely, a there's definitely a little bit of both. The, the plastic is something... Uh, it's a lot like cooking, actually, working with this material, where it's, it's more about just the hours that you spent interacting with it before you can really learn how to, how to predict it. And so we have you know, specialists coming in sometimes saying, oh, no, but this sort of plastic um, shouldn't be treated in this way. It shouldn't be melted at this temperature. Um, but then your instinct says something different. So, no, we are definitely... Yeah, we, we are doing things that you're not supposed to be doing, necessarily. <laughs> Back to Peter Paul Verbeek. We think that we decide what tech is, but are the material conditions of tech not dictating us? <laughs> Absolutely. I think, I mean, that's spot on, really. I mean, actually, I think almost my whole work is about understanding that, understanding what technology and, and tech are doing to us. And that can feel very uncomfortable uh, also for some philosophers and ethicists who then believe that I just say, okay, um, uh, 
technology is in, in charge and we should just follow the rule of technology. But that's not what I want to say at all. But indeed, if you follow the metaphor of a dance, I mean, it takes two to tango, <laughs> really, right? So you cannot do it on your own. So we are the human beings that we are because of the technologies that we have now in our society. One of the interesting things in Japan that people are really very well aware of the deep implications of the fourth revolution. And they say, well, after the fourth revolution, we enter into the fifth type of society, society 5.0. What does that mean? A world with artificial intelligence, a, a digital world. If we once moved from the hunter-gatherers to an agrarian society because of a technology, the plow, <laughs> right? and, and the steam engine took us to the industrial society, the computer to the information society, then now tech takes us into society 5.0. But that doesn't mean that we are just floating helplessly on the ocean of tech and that we cannot do anything. It means that this is the condition of our lives. Technology is the human condition. And that means that we always have to invent ourselves in interaction with the technologies that we have invented, right? So that's the, the two it takes to tango. So you're not powerless, but you're also not uh, in full control. It's really an interaction. And... I think also for the ethical issues of technology, that is the trick. So if ethics has the fantasy to be able to control technology, to set limits and to say, hey, this is not going to happen and that's going to be allowed, then you fail to see how deeply interwoven even our ethical frameworks themselves are already with tech, how they even help to shape how we think ethically. So we have to find this different model where we also recognize that ethics and technology are intertwined, that the yardstick is not independent from what it tries to measure, as it were. Back to 24-7 Taylor Steel's Frank Gehle. Uh, a year ago we had only 100 positions of materials, now we have more than 340. And you see if you've got more materials available, also uh, more materials are being selected in Sofia. Um, and materials which were scarce, scarce or hardly used because we are now putting them as available in Sofia and everyone can see them they are also being selected. Let's say there is a less sustainable material here uh, then just by having it and being so efficient you can create a demand that wasn't there before. Yeah I'm, I'm thinking about that now um, by uh, changing the parameters in Sofia we can influence the demand and uh, uh, availability of materials was one clear parameter where we could influence and could influence also the demands to materials which were available. We could not solve the, the European problem, but we could at least shift problem to areas where we had availability. Uh, the same we see with some stainless steel materials where, for instance, titanium is in. We can also steer that demands to a certain way. Uh, actively, we are trying to steer uh, demand on the logistical side. So we know that some uh, companies have specific uh, desires on, uh, uh, on logistical services and also there we are now um, uh, investigating the demands but also in the same time trying to get these demands in certain standards. So for instance um, we are now supplying um, our products based on their dimensions on certain pallet sizes but some customers of us cannot handle all the pallet dimensions. So we will make in Sofia, uh, in future, availability that they can select their own pallet dimensions or their own transport means. Over to designer Hester van Dijk. It's nice that you went to 24-7 Taylor Steel because it's a company that I also work with. 
I mean, it's a great company. They can produce any shape out of metal uh, that you can think of. So, um, and very cheap and very fast. And uh, so that's definitely interesting. The, the pretty plastic plant that we built ourselves consisted hugely out of parts that we had <laughs> been made by uh, 24-7 Taylor Steel. Um, and it's interesting for sure, all these new technologies. But uh, for me, how those technologies can change the world is more interesting than the technology in itself. Because, yeah, but you have to, I think you have to have this idea of how you want to change the world with the technology you're using. That's more important than the technology itself. You can also change the world with a hammer and a saw, I think. You don't really need a 3D printer, but then the 3D printers, because they are there, have a lot of uh, implications on the world. But the, the, the how they function and how they can work and how they can change the society is more interesting, I think, than the fact that you can make anything with a 3D printer. For example, a lot of has been said about, uh, I don't know if it's really a realistic option, but when 3D printers started becoming smaller and started becoming available to a wide public, uh, people thought that in the future it would be, um, everybody would also have a 3D printer in his house, not just a printer for papers, but also a 3D printer. And then, it's interesting, of course, but how are people going to use it? I mean, maybe you can use it by uh, to to mend things in your house that you can now not repair yourself because it's made of plastic and you don't you can't process plastic. But if you have a three D printer, you probably can fix things. But are people going to do that, or are they going to make stupid things that they don't really need? <laughs> it will be <laughs> it will probably go both ways. Or maybe people, are, most people are just too lazy and they don't want this 3D printer in their homes because uh, it takes a lot of work to to design things you, because you still have to make a drawing or something or you can yeah, probably also download 3D files from the internet and then print it. But why, what's the added value of printing it yourself then? You can also order the, the thing itself online. So... I mean, the, the the technology opens a whole range of possibilities, but how you are going to use it is, I think, more interesting than uh, the technology itself. Back to designer Pip Atkinson in Zandam. Working with tech, working with these robots. Oh, it's moving, by the way, now. Yeah, yep. does that most <laughs> of the time. <laughs> it, again, it's so funny, because especially because people can't see there's this gigantic arm moving back and forth like it's massaging something <laughs> and there's a cloth attached to it which is moving up and down and it looks yes yeah no they're really animals yeah it um, looks does, do you f does it feel like that um it does feel like the workshop is never empty uh and i think that that's that's a lovely feeling as well as, a, as in there's a presence like yeah there's a, yeah absolutely that you know even at night because yeah derek and i will often be down here at night color testing or, or printing stock or whatever it might be uh, and they do take up space you know also also, also in, a, in, a, in a more comfortable sense and uh, I mean they are also children they are also something that 
I mean, you know, <laughs> not not the cutest of children, but they they have grown up over time and they've changed over time with us. Um, and they're a really they're, they're a core part. I mean, the core part of, of of what we're doing. The whole sort of family here is is centered upon these two, um, yeah, these these two creatures that that that, that we felt. And they force a relationship upon you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but how do they do that? So the um, yeah, they they are essential in terms of being able to produce enough in in this space with with this number of hands. Um, but they are also sort of the yeah the, the 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 bane of our existence. And I think that any time that you have this yeah love hate relationship with you know with anything, that is still a relationship. That is still a, a very a very powerful thing. Um, because you feel dependent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, if, I mean, even even after after a decade, and even with many sort of minds and hands in here who are familiar with these with these machines, there's um, there are still constantly surprises, <laughs> and I um, that also necessitates that we approach production uh, in a way that is is more flexible and more sort of peaceful. Uh, than perhaps one one might accept because on, on any day production could stand still because yeah a sensor is not working on the robot um, like children there is something of your own in there which you recognize uh, it's mutated it's different but you see something <laughs> of that do you have that with these machines too like can you see something of Dirk or maybe even or yourself in here. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think that, um, uh, I mean, for the first sort of five years of the studio's existence, Derek was only, he only had his portrait taken in front of the robot. Um, and half the time in, in features or, or in, in, in museums, the, the description of the studio was just a photo of, of the robot. So, um, no, no, I, there is certainly a similarity. And also in the kind of um, the, in the, in the, the layer of dust, in the, um, uh, the the kind of the twisted, burnt-out wires that are that are tangled around this thing. I mean, Derek is also, yeah, he's a bit of a rat bag. I mean, he's a, a bit of a scruffy dog, and I definitely the same sort of affection. Or I think his personality is definitely articulated in the way that these were built up, um, perhaps with. With not all the information, but all the gumption and all the willpower, um, and and yeah, and that that's also yeah. As as his partner, that's something that is really lovely to see. Once more to twenty four seven Taylor Steele. Can we see in Sophia the, the the brain of its of its founder, or is this something now that you should call well, maybe? I, th a collective I think one? where it's coming from is still f visible, of course. Yeah, yeah. Are there traces of you now in Sophia? Yes, due to the change request and what we said we will do and some things we said, well, not now, maybe later. I think there, in the last, mm, uh, let's say this year, we had over uh, between 110 and 120 change requests. This, these were purely driven by our customers and uh, the majority is now uh, being done. So, yeah. It must be interesting then that you, uh, maybe you'll go to a different company at some point, but that part of that AI that is... Uh, being created here is then put in by you. Like there is a bit of you in there. But everyone leaves this legacy here. It's not only me. It's also some of the salespersons who listened well to the customers. 
it's some of the, um, the IT persons who, who knew how to program this. Everyone leaves a little bit here. Yeah. It sometimes seems as if materials just appear somewhere and you, the products appear. And we don't think about where they came from or where they go to after we use them. And the same goes for buildings. We can, uh, in architecture, it's very common. It's, it's starting to change now, but it's, it has been common to just make a building and pretend as if it's going to last forever and pretend as if the materials just come from somewhere and it's not important from where and after you don't want the building anymore, well, it will just disappear again, very convenient. But of course, it's not like that. Those, those materials have been there forever and they have been part of planet Earth in some way forever since, since this planet was here and they will last forever. So uh, if you look at it in that way, so and that's why we call ourselves material choreographers because we just direct those materials that have been there forever. And if you look at it in that way, then it's really stupid to, to make things in a way that they can't be recycled or uh, composted or whatever because then you, you just make trash out of something that has value for us as human beings because the planet Earth doesn't care, obviously. <laughs> it will still be there, no matter if you made uh, a mountain into a rock, into concrete, into waste. For planet Earth it doesn't matter, but for us as human beings it's pretty stupid to act like that, I think. Technology is more our fate, I would say, than something at our disposal. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and uh, I think it does make sense to speak almost in some kind of religious way about technology. It, 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 we, we cannot help living in a technical time, and the, 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 the state of the art and technology of this moment helps to shape how we live, and we, we have to face that. And then if it's about the people and how to empower the people, I think... Um, well, that's maybe also therefore changing in every historical, technological historical configuration. And uh, well, the, 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 the idea of empowerment uh, should also be careful not to see power as control. I mean, then, then, then it becomes something technical in itself and then technology determines everything. We even think that we need to think technologically about technology, right? So empowerment uh, doesn't mean that you are in charge, but it means that together all the voices help to shape the discourse from which we can give direction that's a whole different idea of democracy where democracy is not uh, to be in control of the machine <laughs> it's more uh, how to guide the frameworks from which we make decisions because you yeah. think taking control of the machine is just a past station that's just not something that we can can achieve or is even a yeah, indeed. So I think if we have that technical fantasy about how to deal with technology, it will never uh, uh, be possible, right? Because it has already controlled the way in which we could even control it, <laughs> to say it in a, in a complicated way. So that's really why I believe in ethics, politics as guidance. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that we should do nothing. It simply means that you should accept that it is there with its own character. And that's why it is. And this metaphor of the dance is very nice. I mean, if you, if you ride a horse, I mean, you can try to control the horse, but then it, then it doesn't work at all. You have to understand it. You have to understand what it can do and when it 
wants to do what, together you can uh, ride on a horse. So, and that's, I think, also how we have to deal with the power of technology, which oddly is a power that comes from technology that we have made ourselves, but we, we, yeah, we have made something that has much more power than we thought that it would ever have. No. <laughs> uh, is there any room for uh, for uh, a form of Luddism then in this? Uh, and I mean the like the, the historical sense of that, not the yeah. the yeah. not the curse word that we use it now yeah. for, yeah. Uh, but like yeah. a, a directed, yeah. uh, a, a critical approach to tech, saying yeah. this is yeah. bad for yeah. our way of life because that's yeah. how it originated yeah. in England. Like, yeah. uh, is there a way for Luddism then in this society? Yeah, no, I mean, many people ask me that. So yeah, they say to me, if you think about ethics and politics like that, is there any way to, to say no? I mean, don't, uh, haven't you sold your soul to the devil already, <laughs> right? So, I mean, where is the possibility of resistance and critique, etc.? And yeah, my, my answer would be, uh, of course, there is a lot of important room for resistance and critique, but... Uh, I don't want to give people a, a fake idea of what that could be. And so the, the idea that you could pull the emergency brake and that it would stop, that, that we could really say no and then, then it stops, that's, I mean, that's a fiction. That, that's really uh, opium for the people, if you would use, again, a Marxist uh, metaphor. And so we can't stop it. And if you focus only on formulating guidelines uh, to say, well, if we cross that border, then we have to stop, then... Yeah, then you actually you feel uh, maybe that you are being a very responsible person, but in fact you give up your your real responsibility to make sure that that we deal with the the inevitable technology in a in a responsible way. Peter Paul has a point. We'll never go back to the rotary phone, but maybe we can deal with tech through a different approach, not through the sciences or design but through the arts. Artist Abverhege is in his living room, surrounded by his sculptures. Now, you wouldn't know it from looking around, but here is a man who is building machines that can create water out of thin air. His extensive work in the Arctic has earned him the nickname the White Shaman, something that he attributes to his approach to his craft. When you are surrounded by nature, when you have the opportunity to be off the grid, in the middle of the nature and you have the time and I had the time to see what's going on then you can come to conclusions in your mind I said uh, that was uh, it's already 30 years ago I already was not said I was convinced that water will be one of the biggest challenges in the world at that time and why I had the time to look around a shaman is somebody who knows very many songs because history was given from one generation to the other other generation it was not taught it was not written in uh, in the Arctic it was the songs by the shaman and the shaman was a wise man because he remembered all these songs and he could make a conclusion for the future and that was the shaman and that was exactly what 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 i did i started in 2010 a, a life changing for myself life changing technology project how do we get efficiently 
uh, water out of the air. How can we manage that? And that's uh, maybe a shamanistic thought, but this was, I think it's, it only has to, to do with look around you, what's happening. But this raises the question, if we leave something behind in the tech we create, do we get to decide which bit that is? And to which end? To Hester van Dijk, this can only be answered by going back to the bare fundamentals. Well, I'd like to open a world where uh, material has value and where more people also see the value of materials and that it's natural to not just throw anything away without thought because everything will be there forever. So we should value materials more. Then reuse becomes more obvious and more logical. It's the only choice, actually, if you think about it like that. Yeah. So I think um, that's what we want to show in our work. That a world where things are reused endlessly should be possible. And I don't know, because I also see a lot of things that I really haven't got a clue how you can make them without waste and without um, pollution. But I think that the, that's the big challenge that we face in the next century, if you like. Yeah, when we were working on this plastic project, well, we found out that there are different types of plastic and there are, uh, on any uh, packaging, there's a number saying in, in which group it belongs. But then it turns out that those groups are fast, very fast. So polypropylene is not just one material, but there's a, a whole range of polypropylene and you can mix them. That's okay, but for example, a bag for crisps, that's really, you buy it and you don't even think about it, but it consists out of up to 24 layers <laughs> of different types of plastic and even metal, because this shiny silvery coating inside that keeps the crisps fresh a little bit longer is aluminum. And there's no possible way to ever separate the aluminum from the plastic again. So you can't recycle it in, in any way that we, yeah, that we know of yet. So how, <laughs> how come that we make these crisp bags that are so super high-tech and complicated, but we are too stupid to recycle them again? I think that's, yeah, that's, then my brain stops. <laughs> Op's work in the polar regions has deeply informed his ideas taking him from art through sculptures on the North Pole to engineering water machines in the desert, earning him collaborations with UNESCO and the Dutch government in the process. I became nervous. What if this coming to our regions? So I came up with the idea to build an autonomously running glacier in a hot and dry desert. If they melt on the pole, we maybe are able to build a new one in a desert. And that sculpture is a kind of um, icon that people and science can find answers. Uh, I don't work with scientists, but I work with a technical engineer who is a friend of mine. 
And when we read something that something is not possible, we make it possible. So uh, it, it's it's only a matter of uh, uh, a perception. Uh, if you say okay, it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. So what we to to, to harvest water out of air, it's a new region in uh, physics, but not only physics, but also in the cooling industry. We already have dehumidifiers. And when I started my project in 2010, there was a huge, uh, there, is a, there is a huge market for dehumidifying industry uh, to, to keep your house dry. And I immediately told to, uh, to everybody, I want to do it on a different way. I want to find a new technology because I don't believe that the dehumidifying industry and the climate uh, uh, climate control, the, the the air conditioning industry will give answers. And now it turned that I have a patent on my name. I'm an artist, and I have a patent that I discovered a new, completely new method of condensation. So uh, that's strange, but. Also, when I work with students, I notice when they start a project, first thing they do is making a literature study. So they are narrowing all other options than mentioned we're not crossing the borders of knowledge or ideas. And that's the start of a project. That's already killing to invent new solutions, doing a study, literature study, it's killing. And I never did a literature study. I only say, that's my goal, and there's where I want to go to. My approach is, uh, I build a machine, and then I say, okay, it doesn't work, why it doesn't work, maybe that, okay, let's build a new machine. In the last five years, we built 80 different machines, one better than the other. And then you come to new ideas, because you are doing. You are not uh, sitting in your books studying where the borders are of your own uh, uh, interpretation of finding a solution. So I think in that way, uh, if if you open your mind for a, if, if, if the the basis of your answer is the universe instead of your books then uh, many many uh, options are open dank to peter paul verbeek um, the notion of control is misleading in relation to technology we also have to accept that it somehow is beyond our control. And so technology is embodying a, well, a form of transcendence with a big word. It's transcending what we can understand, what, what we can make. And that's a weird paradox because we associate it with full control. And uh, I mean, the, the, the world of religion is the world of, of openness for the miracle and the wonder and technology is about what you can make and control. But in fact, actually also technologies mediate Transcendence. I mean, uh, if you use the example of human reproduction, you you just got a child. You uh, told me, 
I mean, uh, making a child is how we call it. But well, if you uh, hear how the Vatican speaks about IVF, for instance, very interesting. So they're very much against IVF because it gives you the idea that you can make a child, but you don't make it, you receive it. But the interesting thing is the people that I know who got a child through IVF do not at all have the idea that they made a child. That's how you call it when you don't need IVF and you, then you just make a child. <laughs> but they realize how vulnerable it is and how complex the human reproduction system is and every attempt to, to get a child is an attempt. So there is no control. And so the more high-tech, the more vulnerable, the more dependent we are and the more transcendence there is as well. And I think that notion is important. That makes you humble, <laughs> in a sense. Eh? So that helps you to overcome hubris, as the Greeks would call it. Eh? That you really take too much power, more than you can handle, as it were. And it also has an element of uh, trust. Not trust as blind faith. Eh? That you put your faith in the hand of technology and everything will be fine. It's more trusting yourself to it. Just like um, I think any religious person would not say that they give up all control and they let the gods lead you or something, but they take seriously that there is something beyond your control and you, you, you want to get in touch with that somehow. Yeah. Sorry for being so spiritual <laughs> suddenly, but I think it does make sense to speak about technology in these categories. There's fun in tech and there's even anarchy in technology. I don't know if I knew that before I started. I, I certainly didn't. And there are happy accidents that make you do things intuitively. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I really liked is that there are these moments where neither man or machine knows what's going to happen. I think that's sort of the spots that we have to look for. Yeah, true. Or what Hester explained about this hesitant approach to tech. I thought she gave me a real insight. Yeah, but in the end, I'm, I think I'll go for my shaman. <laughs> I think it'll go for up. The Iceman machine. Yes. It's, uh, I think you just, like, you have to make these things do what you want them to do if you want anything to change. Otherwise, we'll, we'll, we'll stay put in the boxes that the machine has put us in. I take that also from the entire episode. Kind of liberty. Freedom. <laughs> Talking to the universe. Do you think this wraps it up? Is this the final episode? Um... One more round? Yeah, please. One with the crew? Oh, that sounds like a fun plan. Yeah, let's do one more with the crew and see what they made of it. Yeah, look forward, look backward, together. Why not both? Let's do that. Let's do both. Let's do both. Episode five. Episode five. Here we go. Here we go. New Material is a podcast production by Het New Institute, based on the New Material Award. Organized by the Doen Foundation, Fonds Quadraat and Het Nieuwe Instituut. Made by host Maarten Westerveen, editor-in-chief Winneke van Muiswinkel, research and concept Toon Koerhorst en Jannetje Innetveld, program management Ellen Zoete, project coordination Ole Lundin, sound engineer Alfred Koster and communication Sylvie van Oost.